I'd like you to do is open your Bibles with me to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12. We're going to read a couple of verses in chapter 12 and then a couple of verses in chapter 14. I want to go ahead and let you know that this is something that I had planned to get through in one Sunday, but it looks like that's not going to happen. So we're going to plan one more Sunday on this. I was uh, up early as I normally am on a Lord's Day and reviewing the notes. And as I got about halfway through 49 pages, I said, you know what? I think we're going to have to cut it in half. So we're going to do that. So I want to go ahead and let you know that ahead of time. But I think in the last four weeks now, soon to be four weeks exactly, uh, we have been made aware of some very difficult and traumatic events that have occurred in the Middle East. Now, for those of you who are newsworthy of that, you understand these things, you listen to these things, and this is not something new. Middle East crisis, uh, war in the Middle East is not something that has been surprising to any of us. It is an area that is fraught with trouble. It has a lot of conflict. There's a lot of reasons why there's conflict in the Middle East. And we're going to be talking about some of that uh, today and next Lord's Day. But I wanted to do something first before I look at this passage with you. Uh, one of the things that concerns me is, as I've told you before, is that there's a lot of information now that is available to so many at your fingertips. And you can listen to a lot of good information out there, and you can listen to a lot of bad information. And when it comes to prophecy especially, it seems like often the nuts and bolts go off the wheels. And before it's all over with, we have things being said and taught that are not necessarily accurate with God's word. So for those of you who are concerned, I'm going to go ahead and let you know that I am not going to do any newspaper exegesis. We're not going to be reading anything into the text at all. I'm not a, trying to say that this is that or this is something that we are immediately looking at right around the corner. Maybe next week, you know, the Lord's going to return or anything like that, although I am perfectly content if he were to do so. And I would love to see that. But I also have that ambivalence in my mind, as many of us do, where the Bible says God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I know that whenever he comes, there's a lot of people who are going to miss the kingdom. And that's troubling to me within God's purposes. So I, I'm thankful for the patience that God gives to this very, very evil world we live in. Because the more time there is, the more time there is for people to repent and come to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. But I've listened to a lot of things that are out there in the last, now going on, four weeks, and I've been troubled by some things I've heard, and also I have been encouraged by others. But at the same time, what I want to do today and next Lord's Day is to approach this from a little different perspective. And you'll see what I mean as we work our way through it. So today we're only going to cover the first point, and, and you'll see the reason why. But let me go ahead and read what it says in Zechariah chapter 12, and uh, then in chapter 14, the word of God says in Zechariah 12, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut to pieces, 
through all nations, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Now chapter 14, chapter 14, verse 1. The word of God says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, we will get to this text specifically next Lord's Day, and we'll cover it in detail. But for the beginning of it, what I would like to share with you is what I believe to be important to understand regarding the conflict that is currently going on in the Middle Eastern areas. Early on the Sabbath morning of October 7th, exactly 50 years from the day of the Yom Kippur War anniversary, thousands of rockets were fired from Gaza into the nearby nearby towns um, of Israel to distract from the explosions that were going to be set off on the fences separating Israel from Gaza. Snipers would be at the same time taking out communications equipment along with remotely controlled drones who would drop explosive devices on the warning systems. Thirty breaches would be created in the fencing around Gaza into Israel and 1,500 plus Hamas and Islamic Jihad militants would begin entering into Israel. They had trained for this for nearly two years. Explosives would be detonated in strategic locations, and then bulldozers would plow through to open an area for trucks and motorcyclists to go through carrying Hamas terrorists into these unsuspecting Israeli towns. At the same time, motorized paragliders would fly in, undetected by the radar systems that had already, in some of those areas, been obscured by what was happening. They would come in with one intent on their mind, murder, murder. Some others would come by sea and others by foot. One commentator said they overran some bases so rapidly that the soldiers were killed in their bunks and the militants took out communication networks so effectively and efficiently that the area became a blind spot to the military. At the same exact time, that this was happening, Hezbollah from the northern part of Israel in Lebanon area would begin, would begin coming in through motorcyclists from the north. Again, a commentator said the attack exposed the vulnerabilities of Israel's border security system, long believed to be one of the most advanced and indomitable in the world. It was a multi-million dollar smart wall not only built above ground, but buried deep into the ground so that you could not dig through, as Hamas so often loves to do, in digging tunnels. Netanyahu, the current prime minister of Israel, had said that he had believed that they had contained Hamas in Gaza. Forces then left behind were scarce because they were now depending upon the technological advances of security cameras and the sensors on the border wall. One uh, former intelligence personnel said that that wall was so sensitive, if a roach crawled on it, they would know about it. 
But apparently, because of the efforts of the Hamas terrorists, they had eliminated the ability for that wall to sense it. By 8.06 a.m. that morning, an hour and a half of the assault had already occurred. And hundreds of Israeli citizens had been killed. This was before the military had made a statement that they were now at a state of war. By the time it was over with, over 6,000 unguided rockets from Hamas had entered into Israel. Over 1,400 Israeli soldiers, including men and also civilians of women and children, elderly, even their pets, were brutally murdered, raped, and burned alive. Babies were put into ovens. They were mutilated and decapitated. The atrocities, according to some of the Israeli people there, were worse than what the Holocaust gave. In fact, one said that the Holocaust was civil compared to what Hamas did. Parents were made to watch their children be tortured and killed, and children were tied up and watched their parents be tortured and mutilated and killed. Over 5,400, when it was all over, were injured and severely injured, and 1,400-plus dead. And then there were 230-plus who were abducted of women and children and elderly and men who were taken captive by Hamas into their extensive underground tunnel system in Gaza. It was, according to Israel, one of the deadliest attacks, if not the deadliest attack, since the Holocaust. They have called it their 9-11. And it was horrific, no doubt. A declaration of war has since been declared by Prime Minister Netanyahu. He says this is the first declaration of war since 1973, which is the Yom Kippur War. He said, and I quote, this morning on Shabbat, which is the Sabbath, and the holiday, it was a high Sabbath, Hamas invaded Israel and their territory and murdered innocent citizens, including children and elderly. Hamas has started a brutal and evil war. Hamas wants to murder us all. This is an enemy that murders children and mothers and in their homes and in their beds, an enemy that abducts the elderly, the children, and the young women and slaughters and massacres our citizens, including children who simply went out to enjoy the holiday. What happened today, he said, is unprecedented in Israel. I will see, I will see it to the end and that it will not happen again. The entire government is behind this decision. The IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, will immediately use all its strength necessary to destroy Hamas capabilities. We will destroy them, and we will forcefully avenge this dark day that they have forced upon the state of Israel and its citizens. All of the places which Hamas is deployed, hiding and operating in, in that wicked city, we will turn to rubble. I say this to the residents of Gaza, Leave now, because we will operate forcefully everywhere. Since that address, massive, and I mean massive, pro-Palestinian and pro-Hamas demonstrations have been seen in cities throughout the world. Anti-Semitism, in a massive way, has been showing its ugly head everywhere, not only in Europe, and the Middle East, but also in our own land and in the halls of Congress. 
The United Nations has refused to condemn the atrocities of Hamas and has even refused to use the name. Israeli ambassadors that went to the UN have decided to wear the golden star. Printed on that golden star is never again to remind them that the world once also turned a blind eye to the victims of the Holocaust nearly 78 years ago. That's just a little while ago. Islamic nations now are currently positioning themselves as tensions continue to rise. The Iranian leadership, along with the proxies that they use, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis down in Yemen, are making a formal declaration to wipe Israel off the map and to kill every single Jew. Turkey, which is also under the leadership of Erdogan, a radical extreme Islamic member, has also had one of the largest demonstrations with tens of thousands gathered to support the destruction of Israel and the establishment of a worldwide caliphate, which is like the Ottoman Empire 2.0. Er Erdogan said the Hamas is a liberation movement dedicated to the liberation of Palestine, calling the group the Muhajadeen, waging a battle to protect the lands of the people. In other words, he doesn't identify them as a terrorist group, but rather just a liberation organization, which you are probably familiar with that term, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Iran is no um, friend to Israel. In fact, in their, one of their main cities on one of their high-rise buildings is a huge poster that has a picture of their supersonic missiles. And beside the missile, it says, 40 seconds to Israel. 40 seconds to Israel. And there is constant talk now of World War III. What's ironic about all of this, when many people are fleeing Israel and trying to get out of that area, there are thousands of Jews that are getting plane tickets to fly in. Some of them have never been there before. So what's the problem over there? Why can't people just get along? I mean, seriously, do we have to constantly kill everyone? all the time? Why can't we just agree to disagree about the land? Why can't we just live with one another and prosper where we are? By the way, one of the things that launched all of this was an agreement, an economic and peace agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel to normalize their relationship economically, it was getting to the point that you could fly out of Tel Aviv, Israel, and land near one of the beaches in Saudi Arabia and have your vacation there. That's how normal it was becoming. Hamas would have nothing to do with that, nor would Iran. And that's really what is behind the escalation in the immediate context of what's happened over there in the Middle East. But there's much more. And it's much deeper than that. And what you hear on the local news channel doesn't even plumb the depths of what's happening over in the Middle East at all. 
So what I want to talk about this morning is the roots of the conflict. Next Lord's Day, we will talk about the religion of the conflict and then the resolution to the conflict. And by the way, I do have the solution to the problem. The roots, first of all, though, this morning, the roots of the conflict. Now, when you see those kind of things and you hear of that kind of conflict and that kind of murderous intention of Hamas in the Middle East, all of us would definitely say, because we're theologically astute, we would say that the main root of the problem is the fall of man. I mean, the reason why we have all the trouble we have in this world is because man is fallen and in sin. When Adam fell in the garden, he radically changed. He went from a God lover to a God hater. He went from walking with the Lord to hiding from God. And you don't need a whole lot of encouragement in your fallen condition to hate. In fact, it frankly comes natural to all of us in our fallen condition. Man that is born in this fallen state, which are all of us with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, are born with a natural inclination to hate. Given the right environment, with no restraints, and a positive motivation to hate, men in this sinful condition will not disappoint, but will go on to kill millions. Listen, it only takes a few verses when you read Genesis to get to the first murder. Chapter 4, verse 8. I mean, think about how close to home this is. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman to ever exist, their first children, they have murder in their family. It doesn't take long, does it? You only get a couple of chapters into the book of Genesis, and all together the world is filled with violence and evil everywhere. In Genesis 6-5 it says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of his thoughts and his heart were only evil continually. In Genesis 6-11 the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. But even with this, with the judgment of the universal flood, even with God judging this evil that was continually expressed in Genesis 6, there still would remain the seed of evil in the eight souls that were saved in the ark. And as a result of that, that corruption and that fallen nature and that evil intent would again spread from generation to generation to generation to the point that in Romans 3.15, it would say, of all of mankind, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But we need to back up a minute, a minute. We need to go back a little bit. Uh, that's an overall view of the problem. But we need to back up a little bit and go to Genesis chapter 3 again. So look there with me, if you don't mind, for a few moments. To Genesis chapter 3. And I want to just zero in on verse 15. 
Genesis is the book of beginnings or the book of origins. In fact, the word Genesis means beginnings. And we have the beginning of creation. We have the beginning of man. We have the beginning of sin. We have all of those taught to us in Genesis. But in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we have a verse that is very important to understand. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is this talking about? Well, this is, first of all, what many call the Proto-Euangelion, which is the first gospel in all of the Bible in Genesis 3.15. This is a prophecy of the future seed of Messiah coming to literally deal a death blow to the devil. I mean, right at the very beginning, I told you, told you this before, that as man falls into sin, God immediately begins offering mercy and grace by his prophetic announcement of the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. And in Genesis 3.15, this is in the context of God cursing the serpent, which is the manifestation of the devil in the Garden of Eden. So literally what you have is God has already cursed Adam, and then he's cursed Eve, and now he's cursing the devil. And he says to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 15, I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, the enmity is a Hebrew word, comes from the Hebrew word ev, and it simply means to be an adversary or hostile toward one another. It is the idea of a continual hostility. So what he is telling us is that God's going to put this continual hostility and animosity and really war between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Well, that's interesting. What are we talking about here? Well, the your seed there in verse 15 refers to the seed of the devil. Now that refers to fallen humanity. If you read what it says in 1 John, 1 John divides up all of humanity in two groups. You're either children of God or you're children of the devil. One of the two. You don't, there's no other groups. You're in one of the two. And the your seed there refers to the children of fallen Adam, the ones that are of the inclination of the devil himself. But then the author of Genesis, Moses, says, that God says this enmity would be between the children of the devil and her seed. And if it's capitalized in your Bible, that's accurate because the seed there, singular, is referring to the coming of the Messiah. So in the very beginning, in Genesis 3.15, we have this prophecy of an ongoing hostility and hatred that's going to be present in this world between the children of the devil, fallen humanity, and the Messiah, or Jesus Christ. Now, you don't need me to give you any evidence of that, right? I mean, there's plenty of that around to prove that this prophecy was indeed accurate. And this prophetic announcement by God would set in motion the murderous attempt on Satan to literally destroy humanity if he could. But most importantly, he's going to do everything he can to destroy the seed because the seed is the one that's going to come and bruise his head or bring a fatal blow to him, as even is recorded in the book of Revelation. 
So this seed is a problem for the devil. So his primary goal in his existence now is to destroy the Messiah, but he also knows because he can read, and he was very much aware of what happened in Genesis 12, that God's going to bring the Messiah through a people. We all know that people now to be the physical seed of Abraham or Israel. So from then on, Throughout the history of the Old Testament and into the New Testament and currently into the present, there has been an ongoing effort by the devil to destroy the physical seed which would produce the Messiah. It started as early as Exodus chapter 1, whenever there was the attempt of the devil through Pharaoh to kill all the male children. And it didn't stop there. Satan later tried to break the royal line of Christ, which is a very interesting account, and I would encourage you to go back this afternoon and reread this in 2 Chronicles chapter 21 and 22. The royal line, the Davidic line, if you will, or the messianic line, got down to one person, just one. And in that context, it was because the sister of this man who was to be king for one year uh, was willing to protect Joash, who was the last living royal descendant under the king of Judah. And only because of that do we still have today, in God's providence and God's sovereignty, the messianic line protected. And of course it didn't stop there. Esther records how the people of Israel were saved by the fact that a pagan king couldn't fall asleep and a plot to wipe out the Jews and the line of Christ was thwarted. Antiochus Epiphanes, as we talked about in the book of Daniel, tried to destroy the Jews and to wipe out the Jewish population off the planet. We get into the New Testament at the time of the birth of Jesus and Herod again does like Pharaoh does. He tries to kill all the children that are male, trying to wipe out the coming king of Israel. I want you to look at another text, though, just for a moment. Can you turn there with me to Revelation? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. See, I'm not doing too good today helping you find your Bible books because I've only went to one end and to the other end. You've got it easy today. In Genesis chapter, not Genesis, but Revelation chapter 12, we have a very interesting statement given to us here. It looks into the past, but it also looks into the future, and it talks about the devil's attempt to destroy the Messiah. Really interesting perspective. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, just so you don't, we don't spend a lot of time on this, this represents Israel. And it says that this woman was with child, and she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. This is a reference to the coming birth of the Messiah through the nation Israel. Verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadem on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child, capitalized child, as soon as it was born. She bore a male child, listen to this, who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. 
Now, we all know who that is, don't we? That's Jesus. And the fiery red dragon is even identified in the book of Revelation as the devil. And the devil was ready and willing to kill the Messiah as he was born through the nation Israel. But she gave birth to the child. In fact, we know the history because we have the gospel record that the Lord did indeed, he was indeed born, and he did indeed grow up, and he did become a grown man, and he did live a perfect life, and he did die on the cross and was buried and resurrected, and according to the very next verse, or the end of, the, end of verse 5, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. That's the ascension. Now that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Right here in this text, here in Revelation, we have a historic record from God's perspective of how the devil was present trying to destroy the Messiah when he was about to be born. You know, we don't get that unless we have the word of God, because if you were to just read history, it would look like Herod did all of this. But this was the devil orchestrating all of these events to try to destroy Jesus Christ, to kill him. What's interesting about this prophetic announcement here and this historic announcement is after Jesus has been ascended to the throne at the end of verse 5, the woman doesn't cease to exist. It goes on and says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there for 1,260 days. My only point to make there on that text is this, is that after Jesus went back to heaven, listen to this, God's not done with Israel. Or there would be no need to protect her at all. This attempt to wipe out the Jewish people and the nation of Israel has continued until this day. I mean, you can read for yourself through the history of Rome, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD in the temple, through the pogroms of the Crusades and the Catholic Church, all the way to the Holocaust, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, and now the constant threats of the Islamic nations that surround Israel with the full intent to wipe them off the planet, to be done with them. I mean, ever since 1948, nations have surrounded Israel that are hostile toward its existence. But some might wonder, okay, I get the reason why the devil would be so anxious about allowing Israel to exist to make sure the Messiah didn't come. I mean, I can see why throughout history from Exodus all the way through the history of Israel, how often the devil would have attempted to thwart the plans of God and to destroy the people of Israel so Messiah would not come. But why then would the devil care at all if Israel doesn't matter, why would he even care at all that they exist now? Why would he attempt to destroy them now? Why not just leave them alone? I mean, after all, I don't know if you know much about Israel, but Tel Aviv is the homosexual capital of the world. Did you know that? It has the largest LGBTQ parade of all the world. More people go there for trans surgery than anywhere on the planet. And not only that, what is often missed is that 
whenever these paragliders come flying in from Gaza, one of the first targets they had was a music festival. Bunches of young people, hundreds, some say thousands of young people were gathered there to dance and to drink and to have a party. But what was also there was this huge, as big as this building at least, elevated statue of Buddha. Much of Israel is in unbelief and in apostasy. Listen, they don't believe in your Messiah. They don't believe in your Jesus and my Jesus. Many of them don't even affirm the God of Israel. They are living in a state of rebellion and hostility and idolatry and immorality. So my question would be, why would the devil care? He's got them, right? There's nothing to worry about with these idolatrous, immoral people who don't even embrace the Messiah, who rejected him and killed him way long ago. Who cares? Let them just get obliterated as far as that is concerned. Or even if they don't, as long as they exist in rebellion against their Messiah, then that's a wonderful thing. Well, I want to tell you something. I'm going to tell you the reason why it's such a problem to the devil. There's a serious problem. And the problem is this. A piece of real estate. That's right. A piece of real estate. It is probably one of the most valuable pieces of real estate on this planet. And there are a lot of people who would like to have it. And there's one particular being who would love to have it. And that's the devil himself. He would love to have it. This little piece of real estate has been hotly disputed and debated and fought over in all of the world. It is one of the primary reasons why there is war in the Middle East right now. The Palestinians slash Hamas who governs them say to Israel they are the occupation. They are the ones who've taken over our land and they fight for it and their determination is to run the occupiers out but the land matters more than just those reasons it matters listen to this because God had promised this to Israel forever forever it matters, listen to this, it matters because this plot of land is the place that Jesus Christ is coming back to. Now this is going to be a surprise, but please just don't get too shook up. He's not coming back to New York. <laughs> and he's not, he's not coming to London or Moscow. And he's Definitely not coming back to Washington, D.C., although I would love to see that. I really would love to see that. He's not coming back to Madrid, Spain, or Istanbul, Turkey. He won't be showing up at Egypt to take a tour of the pyramids. No, the Bible is very, very clear, emphatically clear. When he comes back, he's coming back to Jerusalem. And he's coming back to put his physical, resurrected, glorified feet on the Mount of Olives. And it is the same mount that is there today. 
And it is also the same mount upon which Jesus Christ had prayed the night before his crucifixion, not my will, but your will be done. And he is not coming to a land, listen to this, that has no Jews in it. He's coming to a nation of unbelieving, Christ-rejecting, God-dishonoring Jewish people. That's who he's coming back to. There's a huge reason why this land is fought over more than any other piece of real estate in the planet. And the reason why is that Satan does not want Israel to occupy this land because it is the promised land that God gave to them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And listen to this. If Satan can keep Israel from having that land, then God's promises are not true. This is so critical to understand. If Satan can keep Israel from occupying that land, God is a liar and his promises are not true. Satan knows this is critical, critical to the future fulfillment of prophecy. Let's take a moment and go back to a couple of prophecies in the Old Testament. So follow with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we'll talk about the uh, Abrahamic covenant for a second. Genesis chapter 12. This is going to be elementary to all of us, but I hope you'll just hang in there with me. Don't get distracted, but pay attention to the words that is in this covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and following. God's called Abraham out of an idolatrous, ungodly, heathen, paganistic nation and culture. And God is going to make Abraham the father of many. And it says in Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, or Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you, listen to this, a great nation. Which the great nation assumes there has to be a place to have a nation, which means it has to have a plot of land. He says on in this text, in verse 2, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How did that happen? Well, we all know how that happened. It happened because of Christ. Christ came through the descendant of Abraham, which is the nation of Israel, and Jesus is born in and through the nation Israel, and you and I are here today worshiping and knowing Christ because of this promise. But there's more to it. Genesis 12, 7, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Look at chapter 13, verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, this is chapter 13, verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place from where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants. What's the next word, folks? Forever. Forever. And by the way, I checked that Hebrew word. You know what that means? Exactly. Now Hebrew scholars. And by the way, it's, it's no different in the Greek. And it happens to be the same thing in English. 
is forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants should also, also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its breadth, for I give it to you. I give it to you. Now, there was a little problem, uh, just a small problem. The problem is, is that Sarah can't have children. And God's giving all these wonderful promises that I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you this land, and you're going to have descendants so numerable that you can't even count them. And he's thinking, okay, that's wonderful, thank you, Lord, but my wife can't have children. I've got a serious problem here. So how can he give land to descendants that don't exist? And how can God fulfill a promise when he has a woman who literally cannot conceive and bear a child? Well, we pick it up in chapter 15. The story gets better. Genesis 15, verse 2. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my own house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now to heaven and count the stars, if you're able to see them and number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. And what's the statement in verse 6? Abraham believed the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He saved right there. He believes the Lord. Now, we don't know to what degree of information he got. I'm sure he did not get a full Christology of theology. But in Hebrews, it does say that God preached the gospel to him. He understood enough to know that he's looking forward to the Messiah to come through his lineage. And he believes, even though he literally has everything physically working against him, nothing is true in his physical mind. My wife can't have children, and you're promising me that I'm going to have descendants, and not only that, the Messiah is going to come through me? And what does he do? He believes. He believes. He trusts in God and his word and the coming Messiah, and he is made righteous. That's imputated righteousness. He doesn't become righteous because of what he does or did do. He's made righteous by God. In verse 7 it says, And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the Ur of Chaldees, and I give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, and here's the key, folks. You need to understand this. How shall I know that I will inherit it? What is interesting about this is he does not say, Lord, please help me know how I will know that I will have descendants I can't number. He doesn't ask that. He says, how do I know that I will inherit this land you keep talking about? I mean, I'm out here wandering around. I have no place to call my own. And you're telling me I'm going to be this great nation. How do I know that I'm going to have this land? Now notice what God does in verse 9. He says, So he said to him, Bring me three, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to God and cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite of other, and he did not do it, cut the birds in two. Now what's going on here? This is uh, actually what is referred to with the word covenant. It means to cut. And this is cutting a covenant. And when they would do things like this, which would clearly be, clearly be a very brutal picture of these animals being cut in half, in blood everywhere, 
And what is being said here is that if I don't keep this covenant, then let the same thing happen to me that happened to these animals. Okay? It was a very graphic way of reminding us that God is very, very serious about keeping his word. So he puts this out for all these animals to be cut in two and for God to begin to make a covenant with Abraham. And in verse 11 it says, And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So Abraham goes to sleep. Or maybe God put him to sleep. And then he said to Abram, this is God talking to Abram while he's asleep, No, certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's Egypt. And also... The nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward. This is the ten plagues, and they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down, and it was dark, and behold, and Abraham is asleep, by the way, Abraham's asleep, There appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made the covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And then he goes on and names the list of the occupants of the land at that time that would eventually be expelled from the land by war and other methods. And the point is, is that what I want you to understand about this is, this is a unilateral covenant. In other words, most covenants are made between two conscious people, right? In other words, both agree that if we don't keep the terms of this covenant, then whatever we have with the animals being cut in two, that would happen to both of us if we don't keep the terms of the, of the covenant. God puts Abraham to sleep, and the point behind all of that is, you don't have anything to do with this, Abraham, This is my covenant with myself for the people that are going to be your descendants. And I will give you this land. This does not, listen to this, it does not depend upon Abraham's obedience. Occupation of the land depends upon obedience, as the Mosaic covenant would clearly teach. But ownership of the land depends upon God's word and God's promise to Abraham. Now the scripture has this actual covenant stated 170 times. This one, 170 times about the land that God would give to the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised this, as we call it, the promised land of Canaan to the Jews in an unconditional unilateral covenant. 55 times the Bible records this covenant as confirmed by an oath. 12 times it states that the covenant is, listen to this, everlasting everlasting. Let me show you a couple of verses. Well, I'll tell you what, don't turn to these, just listen, because we're going to go quickly through them. Genesis 17, 8, the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give to you as an everlasting possession. Jacob said to Joseph in Genesis 48, verse 3, God Almighty said to me, I will give this land as an everlasting possession. Exodus 32, 13, remember your descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore, 
God says, I mean, they said, Moses says that God swore by your own self that you will give your seed all the land I have promised them and will be their inheritance forever. And Judges, I want you to see this one if you can get there quickly. Judges 2. Judges 2. I know I've got you going all over the Bible, but there's just so much I would love to cover that I don't have time to do, but it gives you the flavor of what I'm referring to. In Judges chapter 2 and verse 1, this is one of those Old Testament Christophanies. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ in the, the Old Testament. And uh, some call it Theophanies or the Old Testament appearance of God in a physical form. And um, Judges 2.1, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, Now the angel of the Lord... There can be angels of the Lord or a angel of the Lord, but this is the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord referring to an Old Testament appearance of the Lord himself. We know it's that because the very next statement, what this angel says, this angel says, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I listen to this, I will never break my covenant with you. Now, that's pretty clear to me, isn't it? It's pretty clear. I will never break this covenant. This is a unilateral covenant. It doesn't depend upon Israel's obedience. It doesn't depend upon Israel's uh, morality or immorality. It doesn't depend upon their belief or, in, or unbelief. It depends upon God's word, God's covenant with himself. Now, 1 Chronicles 16, 15, you don't need to turn to this. It says, he remembers his covenant forever, the word he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac and confirmed to Jacob in a decree to Israel as an everlasting covenant to you, I will give the land of Canaan. And the reason why I keep emphasizing this is that so often people just refer to the covenant of Abraham to be the blessing of the Messiah and believers that come from Abraham. I get that. That's part of it. But this is repeated over and over and over again to be part of the Abrahamic covenant unilaterally given to the people of Israel as a promise forever to their seed. You say, but we're the seed. Well, yeah. So guess what you get? He got you a free piece of real estate over in the Middle East. You can go over there and build right now if you'd like. Give it a shot. But here he's promising God over and over again that he's given this land to the physical seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 25, 5 says, Turn now each of you from your evil ways and you can stay in the land the Lord gave you and your fathers forever and ever. So again, occupation is based upon Obedience, at least until this last part where God is gathering back his people into the land for future redemption. But he's given to your fathers forever and ever. Amos 9.15 says, here's another one, I will, give, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I've given them. Let me read that one more time. Amos 9.15, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord God. Now, this is not the only problem over in the Middle East. I know many of you understand this. It's not only the land, but it's also because there's some problems between some people over there. 
You remember way back whenever Abraham was offered a son and God promised him that he was going to give a son. And Abraham said, okay, Lord, I get it. You promised me, but this is taking too long. I'm getting old. She's getting old. So they decided to go against the plan of God and try to do it themselves. And they ended up with Abraham literally committing adultery. All right. And then he produced a child, which we know today as who? Ishmael. Ishmael. And the Ishmael produced the Ishmaelites, <laughs> which occupied a large portion of the area around what we know today as Israel. But not only them, we also have the descendants of Shem, which occupied most of the Mesopotamian area. And then a little later on from Ishmael and Isaac, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And God sovereignly gives the covenant through Jacob, not Esau. Esau ends up becoming, with his descendants, enemies of Israel. All of that mishmash of people from Mesopotamia and the descendants of Shem and the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Esau eventually are all surrounding, we would call them the Arabic peoples surrounding Israel. But they all had different idols and different religions and a whole bunch of stuff until one man shows up and his, man, his name happens to be Muhammad. And Muhammad gets a couple of revelations, he claims, from God. And the revelations he gets is that the one God of Israel is not the true God. The true God is Allah. And his prophet is Muhammad, as we all know today, as it stated. But because of that, we have this huge mix of people that are gathered around Israel who are solidified under the Islamic religion. The Islamic religion. And today, where we are now, the Muslims call Israel the small Satan. Well, why are they the small one? Because you and I, as America, are the big one. We're the big Satan. We support Israel. Therefore, we're Satan. Now, I want to get into the religion of this later on. And that's going to be the next Lord's Day as we talk about that. But as we close... Today, I want to share a couple of closing thoughts because I know as you hear what I've shared with you today, you may ask the question as you leave here, okay, pastor, thank you for that historical lesson. So what? Right? So what? Let's ask like the Puritans would. So what? What does it matter? I don't live over there. I may go take a tour there, but I'm not going to stay there. Uh, I don't have any people there. Or whatever. You may say something like that. Why do I even care? Well, there's a number of things I think we should think about before we leave here today. And the first is this. And the first is the most important. These people that are dying over there in the Middle East without Christ are going to hell. Okay, we don't need to forget that. The Jewish people that are in the land of Israel right now who do not embrace Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Listen, they can read the Torah all day long. They can memorize the Old Testament. They can be Orthodox Jew if they will. But if they do not embrace Jesus as their Messiah, whenever they close their eyes in, de in death, they go to hell. And you and I should be burdened about that. Because anytime I see such atrocities that occurred over there, and I'm thinking, listen, I looked at 
I don't know if you've done this, but I went online and I've looked at all the pictures of the people that are abducted. The children, the elderly. I've looked at some of the very graphic pictures of the atrocities there of families that were slaughtered. And my immediate thought is, man, those are just some bad people that came in there and did that. That is true, but my immediate thought is, that person died and they closed their eyes in death. And if they didn't know Jesus as their Messiah, they immediately opened their eyes in hell. There was one video. <clears throat> I'm not going to share the details because we have children in here. But there was one video of one of the Hamas terrorists. They were wearing body cams to record everything they did. And then they would take the imagery of what they did, they would post it on the victim's Facebook page and send it back to the family so they could see what they did to their family. But one of the Hamas terrorists was running through one of the villages there and was clearly trying to do his evil deed as he was shooting through the walls of the houses. But he got shot and he hit the ground. And all you could hear him saying is his last prayer, Allahu Akbar. Folks, when he closed his eyes, he was in hell. As literally as we are sitting here today, he died thinking he was doing the work of his God. And whenever he opened his eyes, he was in hell. We should be greatly bothered by that. We should be enormously bothered that the fastest growing religion in the world is Islam. We should be greatly bothered that there are thousands upon thousands, now millions upon millions of people who are embracing a false religion that does not teach the true God of Israel and does not teach the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the Hamas terrorist, the Islamic jihadist, all the Islamic people who do not embrace Christ and even the Jewish people will go into eternity without Christ if they don't trust him. Second thing I'd leave us with today is this. God's promises matter. When I read the word forever, my first thought goes to you are given eternal life. That's life forever. And the Bible says that he will, not, he will never snatch us away from his hand, ever. Listen, if God from eternity past has promised to give you eternal life, what assurance do you have that he will keep his promises to you if he breaks his promise with Abraham about the land? If forever doesn't mean forever, folks, we need to all pack these bags and go home because the words don't mean anything anymore. They mean something. And I want to add this to you, or add this thought to you today. God is faithful. He is faithful to keep his word. In the midst of the history of Israel and all that's happened, and even what we're seeing now today over there in the Middle East, God is absolutely faithful to keep his word. And he will remain faithful. He is, as it says in Hebrews chapter 6, he and his faithfulness to keep his promises are an anchor to the soul. 
And then another one I would close with this is that this prophecy and what we've read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I'm not saying that this is that. I'm not saying that, you know, next week we're going to see Jesus show up in the sky, although I really wish he would. I'm not saying that any of these things necessarily all line up with all the biblical prophecies of what would happen, even in Zechariah, as we'll see next Lord's Day. But I am telling you folks, and I believe this with all of my heart, there is coming a day, and this could be the precursor to it. I don't know. But there is coming a day when those armies will gather around Jerusalem. And they will come in and take siege of that city. And they will do devastating things and atrocities that you and I can't even conceive of. The level of hate that fills the mind of the Islamic jihadist and the Hamas terrorist, you and I can't even comprehend. We can't get close to that. So I would encourage you as we close to pray. You need to pray. Uh, uh, Bobby McDonald has family over there. His daughter and son-in-law are in Israel. Not too far. I think he told me just a few miles from where Gaza uh, came in and attacked the Israeli settlements there and attacked those little houses. We need to pray for the protection of the men and women over there. We need to pray also for the Palestinians that are not part of this war there are families out there that in in palestine that understand this and they're like look we don't want to be a part of this and we don't want what hamas is doing so we need to pray for people we need to pray that this would cease and that all of those who have done the atrocities would be brought to justice and we need to pray for the churches over there the missionaries over there the christians over there who are in some of the most hostile areas of this world now and they just sent out a bulletin this morning that all those who are Jews, don't even let them know you're a Jew and remove any kind of uh, indication on your baggage or anything that you're a Jew. Why? Because anti-Semitism is off the charts now. It's not just Germany. It's all over the world. And do you think that you and I will be exempt of that whenever they get through with the Jews? No, no. Oh, no. Mm -mm. We need to pray for that. Well, we'll talk about it more next Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this today. We just ask you, Lord, that you would help us as we think through these things and to remind ourselves of your great faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you for your truthfulness of your word. Thank you, Lord God, for your love for us from eternity past. Thank you for including us in the blessing that you gave to Abraham Thank you for the Messiah coming through him and his seed. Thank you, Lord, even for your divine protection of the people of Israel through the ages as, again, another indication of your faithfulness to them and faithfulness to your word. And I do pray, Father, that you would save many of the Jews in Israel, that you would save, Lord, the people of Palestine, that you would save the Hamas terrorist before he closes his eyes in death and opens them up in hell. I pray, God, for you to be merciful as you have shown us so much. Be gracious, Lord God, to these people who need their eyes opened and their dead souls resurrected to life. And I pray, God, that you would again help us, Lord, as we think through these things, to think through them biblically and to love you and to trust you with it. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>